in the time of JL. Warriors were afraid, no fight left, so God called the brave, unafraid. Double rose tall, a mother, a prophet, answer God's call. Wake up, girl, sing a song, show them how to live, brave and strong. No more can't fight discussions, diverted distractions. Somebody trouble wants to gain traction. Action, and if they ask, get the back then. Tell them he's not brave enough to go alone. The victory will go to someone unknown. Yeah, unknown. Uh, yeah. Lil JL, the mountain goat, will take the victory with the nail and some milk. Uh, home make a turn superhero when she turned up her brave and struck unafraid. He slumped down, fell dead of defeat, just like he said, I gave the defeat. Uh, now it's the same old thing in modern times. God is asking us to step across the lines. Don't ask questions, just jump right in. Cause when we know it's him, he'll give us a win. So, do what he wants, say what you gotta say. First, two, just three, your brain. All of us have a love-hate relationship with responsibility. The concept, the implementation, the word itself. For several centuries, we in this country have honored those who have taken the responsibility to fight for us, to defend the nation. In fact, as we look at those special forces that are involved in the different branches of the service, we honor those who take the responsibility to train to do what others won't do, 
to go behind enemy lines. And when one of their comrades falls, they bring them back with them, and they take that responsibility. We honor the entrepreneur who has an idea, a dream, and he works hard, or she disciplines herself to do whatever is required to make that business fly. The long hours, the sacrificing, and they step up to those responsibilities. And when the business succeeds, we honor them. They write books. We buy them. And we let them talk to us about their discipline and their leadership. In the corporate world, when a business is going under, after years of success, we honor that person who comes in and says, I will take the responsibility to turn it around. I will take the responsibility to make a success. It means that not everyone's going to be happy, not everyone's going to be pleased, but I will take the responsibility to do what needs to be done. And again, when that individual succeeds, we honor them. That's why we make movies like 42 of the famous baseball player Jackie Robinson who took the responsibility to be the one who would break the color line in baseball. And regardless of all the prejudice, all the bigotry, all the threats, whatever it was, he said, I will take that responsibility. And I will also take the responsibility not to do it by fighting, but by outplaying the other players. We honor our own children when they take the responsibility to be kind to that child on the playground that the other children don't want to be around. Or when they get a job and they work or they do what needs to be done to study, to get the grades, to get to college, or when they graduate from college, they go out and get a job and we look at that child and we say they're responsible and we honor that and we praise that. When those kinds of things happen, we love responsibility. But when there's failure, when there's pain, when there's suffering, when there's heartache, we don't want responsibility. It's interesting to me when you talk to most people who have been involved in a traffic accident. It's always the other person's fault. They went through the light. They moved over into my lane. It was their fault. We never hear anyone say, I was a stupid driver. I shouldn't have been texting. I shouldn't have been on the phone. I shouldn't have been, have been, I should have been paying attention. It's my fault. No, it's always somebody else's fault. You talk to people who have been through divorce, which is a major breakup of relationship. Sometimes one person will say, well, I did this wrong and I did this wrong, but let me tell you about my spouse. Let me tell you how bad he was. Let me tell you how inconsiderate he was, or let me tell you what she was like. Seldom do you hear a person say, I blew it. I made the mistake. I'm surprised anybody wants to be married to me. I'll take responsibility. Or the businessman or the businesswoman that goes under. It's always the economy. It's always the competition. It's always the competitors. You never hear one of them say, I'm a foolish businessman. I made wrong decisions. I didn't do well. We don't want that responsibility. Nothing bugs me more than when you have that special night with your spouse in the city and you mortgage the house for parking and you pay 30, 50, 60 dollars to park and you get that little card and on it it says, we are not responsible. What do you think I just paid you for? Or you walk into that nice restaurant and they want you to check your coat. And again, you get the card. 
we're not responsible. Most of us get very frustrated at corporations who have done all kinds of things that are inappropriate. And yet they will spend millions and millions on lawsuits to say we're not responsible. You see, we have a love-hate responsibility with the concept of responsibility. But I would suggest that that love-hate relationship is worse for followers of Jesus Christ. Because you see, when we follow Jesus Christ, when we say, God, I'm a sinner. I need to believe in Jesus. Will you forgive me? I want to give my life to you. And we become a son, a child, a daughter of God. We become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We are now given a whole new set of responsibilities that we never had before. We come to God by faith and by grace, but he says, now that you're my disciple, I want you to live differently for me. And often as we look at those responsibilities, we're not sure that we want to fulfill them. And yet most of us don't have the courage to say, God, I'm not going to do that responsibility. Or God, I'll do this one, but I won't do that one. We get a little bit more sophisticated. In fact, we see that kind of sophistication with the two judges that we want to look at tonight. The book of Judges chapter 4, we really have two judges. First is Deborah. Now, Deborah is the leader of Israel. By the way, she is the only woman in the Bible who is described being in that kind of a position. Number two, she actually functions as a judge. People who can't settle things because no one wants to take responsibility come to her and she makes decisions. And then uh, she not only is a judge, we are also told she is a prophetess, which brings us to the story we want to talk about. You see, Israel has again disobeyed God. They have rejected their responsibility to say, God will serve you. They began to serve other gods, and so God, as he does in the book of Judges, brings some oppressors. And these oppressors cause Israel all kinds of suffering. Now, the oppressor is a Canaanite king by the name of Jabin, who is in the north, the northern part of Israel. And his general is Sesra. And they have controlled for 20 years the plain of Esdralon. That's Israel's breadbasket. And the way they have done that is they have 900 chariots. Now in Israel's day, the chariot was the ultimate weapon of warfare. Kind of like the tank in World War II or the drone today. And for 20 years, at harvest time, they would take whatever they wanted for their nation, for their people, causing starvation and famine in Israel. Plus, the rest of the year, they controlled it like a national bully. And if the people of Israel didn't do what they wanted, they were hurt, maimed, or killed. And finally, they cry out to God and say, God, would you do something? And so through the prophetess Deborah, she calls up in the north to a man by the name of Barak, the second judge. Barak apparently is a military man and can marshal people. And uh, she calls him down and she says to him, God has a responsibility for you. You're to gather 10,000 men and take on Sesra and his army. And if you do that, God will give you the victory. Now, that's a clear responsibility. But I'm assuming that as she's saying that to Barak, he's thinking, 10,000 men, not very well equipped, not very trained, an army with 900 chariots, all the soldiers, more soldiers than we have, we're going to lose. 
And Barak gets very sophisticated in how he handles this responsibility. Follow along as I read from uh, chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Sure, certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sesra into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. Here's what Barak said. Deborah, you're the judge. You're God's favorite. You're the prophetess. <laughs> He's not going to let anything happen to you. So you go with me, and I'll do it. But if you don't, I won't. And he basically dealt with that responsibility with that little word, if. If you do it, I will. If you don't, I won't. Deborah says, fine. But if I go with you, because you have deferred God's responsibility, the blessing will be deferred. And instead of you getting the credit for the victory, a woman will do it. And so they go. He marshals the 10,000 men. They come from the heights up in Mount Tabor down into the plain of Estralon. And as we read in Deborah's song in chapter 5, God floods the Kishon River. The 900 chariots get stuck in the mud, are immobile, and Israel wins a great victory. Sesra, seeing what happens, leaves his chariot to head back to his lines. He is being chased by the enemy. And he comes to Heber's tent. Heber's wife, Jael, recognizes Sesra. Says, you're tired. You've been fighting all day. Come in, let me feed you and take some rest. And he does that. And as he falls asleep, she takes one of those big pigs that holds the tent down, puts it over his head, takes a mallet, and puts the peg right through his head. So Barak shows up a short while later. And he realizes that that which have, could have been his, the defeat of Sesra, has gone to a woman, jail, and she gets the blessing. Deferred responsibilities bring deferred blessings. Let me illustrate. One of the responsibilities you and I have as followers of Jesus Christ is to be content with what we have. The Apostle Paul says whether we're rich, whether we're poor, whether we're middle class economically, upper class, lower, he says whatever you have, be content with what you have. Now that is a difficult responsibility for American Christians. And the reason it is, is that we live in a capitalistic country. And if I'm a capitalist and I understand that I have a good or a service that I want you to buy, my job is to make you discontent because you don't have it. All advertising, all marketing is designed to produce discontentment. And every day, all of us, whether it's in the media, whether it's in print, whether it's now on our computers, we are constantly bombarded with messages to buy this, buy that, and we're told. If you really want to be seen as bright, sophisticated, wise, intelligent, you need to buy this. You need to have this kind of automobile. 
You need to have this kind of iPhone. You need to have this kind of computer. You need to live in this kind of a house. You need to have these kinds of clothes. And we are taught daily to be discontent. And the Bible comes along and says, but be content. Well, what's that look like? Well, let's suppose tonight every one of us could be transported out of this room, out into a rural area where there is just a massive, flat, grassy field. And we are told to take all that we have, our houses, our cars, our televisions, our clothes, our investments, our retirement, our insurance, take all we have and put it in a pile in the field. And once everything is put there, draw a circle around it. And as you stand back and look at your pile, you say, okay, that's cool. I'm content. Now, we might be content until we start to walk around and look at the other piles in the field. Now, we'll go to one part of the field, and the piles aren't that big, and the circles aren't that large. That doesn't produce discontentment. Or we go to another part of the field. Man, the piles are enormous. The circles are humongous. That doesn't produce content. I mean, we might like to have that, but that doesn't make us discontent. What makes us discontent is when we look at those other piles and circles that are just about the same size as ours, and we see who owns that circle. I think, I'm brighter than they are. We work harder than they do. We're better parents than they are. We're smarter. You say to your spouse, that's our neighbor. We, we thought he was an idiot. His pile's bigger. His circle's larger. And that's what makes us discontent. And we come to God and we say, God, I'll be content if, if we can move to that neighborhood. I'll be content if we can have that automobile. I'll be content if I can get that promotion. Most Americans believe, whether you make 50000 150000 250000 doesn't matter. If we just had $10,000 more, we'd be content. And so we come to God, and we say, God, I'll take on this responsibility if you do this. In my life, I had to learn this really young. About 1960, I was of the age that I got my license. Now, for a teenager, that's a big event, even today, get your license. So I got my license, and I went to my father, and I said, now I have my license. I want a car. And my father said, fine, go get a car. I said, you mean buy it? He said, oh, yeah. Now, you have to understand, I'm one of those fathers who had lived through two world wars, the Depression. He always walked, you know, barefoot in the snow, uphill both ways to go to school. Told me about that every week. So, you want a car, you go buy a car. I said, well, Dad, first of all, I don't have a lot of money. What car can I buy? He said, well, you can buy the family car. Now, the family car was a 52 Studebaker. Now, those of you 50 and under, you have no idea what I just said. 
52 Studebaker, okay, which my father had bought used from my brother, okay, and who had traveled back and forth to seminary pulling his house trailer, I mean, had put hundreds of miles on it, who my brother had bought it used from the original owner. Probably had 200,000 miles on it. It was our family car. My father couldn't afford to give me a car. I said, how much do you want? He said, $200. I said, I don't have $200. He said, well, go get a job. So I got the job, saved up the money, gave him the $200, got the car. Now, there was part of me thought, if I get that car, I'm going to be content. I mean, after all, for a teenager, that's independence. That's freedom. You can get out of the house. You can get away. And when I had that part, that, that was good. The problem was, my junior and senior year, every time I drove onto the high school parking lot, and there were all of my friends, and they had cars. Only their parents had given them their cars. The cars were bigger, shinier, nicer, didn't arrive with a cloud of blue smoke like mine did. And I remember I used to drive in that parking lot and just think, loser, 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 that car. Eventually it died. Went through college, got a car. Got married. We had to go to seminary, so we had to get a car. So we got a car, used car, serviceable car. But there was one problem. It had no air conditioning. And we went from the Northeast, 1,500 miles, to go to seminary in Texas in August. And you get to Texas. It's 100, 110. That's midnight, you know. And you go out to get in the car, you know, after it's been sitting in the sun for, you know, and it's like an oven. Oh, loser, loser. Then I got a job working my way through seminary at a bank. Banks are nice sometimes. They said, we'll loan you some money. 1967. I found a dealer that gave deals to seminary students. Bought a brand new Chevy Camaro. Yeah, my son says, why don't you have it today? All kinds of horses under the hood. Shiny, bright, air conditioning. And I must admit, when I drove on the seminary parking lot and I saw the other students, oh, their cars were okay. But they weren't a brand new Camaro. I thought, winner, winner, winner. Now, two years later, I got a 69 Malibu. And then reality set in. Left seminary. Became a pastor. They don't pay well. (laughs) Driving a used Volkswagen. And for the next 10 years, we lived with the financial poor choices I had made because I was discontent and I thought a car would make contentment. God says, no, no, no. Take the responsibility if you want the blessing. But don't say you'll be content if. Or talk about worry. The Bible says don't worry. Jesus said don't worry. The Apostle Paul said don't worry. And you say, well, yeah, easy to say, hard to do. I mean, 
Now, if I have a child in elementary school, I've got to worry. When I send them there every day, will they be safe? What happens when they get to high school? Drugs and alcohol and all kinds of other temptations. And what peer group will they get in? And if they enlist, what if they're in Afghanistan? God, i got to worry. Now, God, if you change some things, then I won't worry. Or since 2008, and we're upside down on our mortgage, or our investments have all but disappeared, I'm not sure about my job. My spouse works, and he or she's not sure about his or her job. God, i got to worry. I mean, you don't know what we face. And I can remember many nights trying to go to sleep. And you can't sleep because you're rehearsing the next day and the next week and the next three months. Or you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning and you can't get back to sleep because you worry. And Jesus said, but don't worry. Now, the other side of it is he tells us how not to worry. He said, the world's got enough problems. Just concentrate on today. If you're going to think about anything, just think about today. And the Apostle Paul said, yes. And you think about those things and you pray about them. It's been interesting. I have learned that when I can't go to sleep at night, if it's all right, now tomorrow when I get up, what is it that I can control? What is it I'm kind of in charge of? And I say, God, will you help me do that well? Will you help me do that one wisely? Will you help me to do that in a way that is expedient and profitable? But then there's all those things I can't control. That interview when somebody's coming in, the way my boss is going to interact with me. I, God, I've got to pray about that, and I've got to pray about that. And it's been interesting to me how many nights I go to sleep while I'm praying. Because God says, if you want the blessing, you've got to take the responsibility. And too often we say, God, if you do this, I'll stop worrying. If you do this, I won't worry. Deferred responsibility brings deferred blessing. As Christians, we know that if we're married, we're to love and care and cherish and support our spouse. Now, that's easy to do when you're dating. That's easy to do when you're infatuated. That's easy to do those first years of marriage when you're doing all your firsts, that first apartment, the first job, the first car, the first baby. You know. But 10, 15, 20, 30 years into the marriage, you come to realize in that area, he is never going to change. And in that area, She's never going to be what I want. And we come to God and we say, God, I'll love my husband if. I'll love my wife if. And we're convinced because the pattern keeps going on that they're never going to change. And so we say, God, I've got to practice some behaviors that take care of me. Sometimes those behaviors are quite immoral. 
and often may break up a marriage. But sometimes those behaviors are good in and of themselves, but they become sin because we're deferring responsibility. As I've been around church, it's been interesting to me the number of women and you say, you know, my husband doesn't want to be the spiritual head of the house, and he's not. And, 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 and I'm going to say, I feel bad about that. But then I watch as they get involved in two or three Bible studies and this women's group and this prayer group and do anything to worship and study the Bible and honor God except do what they need to do with their husband. Or men said, my wife isn't going to be what I want her to be. And so I'm going to get involved in the community. I'm going to get involved in working with youngsters. I'm going to get involved in a hobby. All good things. But it's a deferral of responsibility. And therefore, the blessing is deferred. Over 20 years ago, a person with whom I had a very good relationship, done a lot of things together. We were friends. We laughed and joked and it was just a good relationship. The relationship began to deteriorate. And as it deteriorated, we both said and did things to each other that were very non-Christian, highly inappropriate. And so as I saw that the relationship was irrevocably broken, I went to that person, and I said, obviously, we can't walk together anymore. Will you forgive me? And I listed the things I thought that I had done that were wrong. For the last 20-some years, if you had said to me, what do you think of that other person? If I was really being honest... I said, I really don't like them. I really would like to see the worst happen in their life. I, I, I don't even think about that person. In fact, in the last 10 years, I've developed some pretty good mental habits not even to think about that individual. And as I began three months ago to work on these sermons, I thought, you know, Paul, you're living with a big if Because if you had come to me and said, you asked that other person for forgiveness, but have you forgiven them? I said, no, you're crazy. Well, what's it going to take for you to forgive them? If they come and ask for my forgiveness. See, they never did that. And if they'll do that, If they'll say, I did this wrong and I did this, Paul, will you forgive me? If they'll do that, then I'll forgive them. Now, I know forgiveness is not an emotion. It's a choice. It's a decision. And so about six weeks ago, I made a special trip to go to that person. And I sat down and I said, I realize our relationship is broken. But I'm here to tell you that I forgive you for the hurt, for the pain. I'm not going to rehearse it. But I was wrong for not coming to you 
and asking. I forgive you. It's been interesting. The last six weeks, all the emotion has gone away. And those bad feelings, that angst is gone. It's interesting to me that Deborah, who is the one judge with whom we are not told of any major flaws, probably because she was such a great woman woman of honesty and integrity and leadership. Meanwhile, here's Barak who says, I'll do it if. When you get to Hebrews chapter 11, the honor roll of faith, it says the judges were people of faith and three or four of the judges are mentioned. One of the judges that is mentioned is Barak. You see, there's hope. He did go. He did do what God said. He just kind of put it in that if. And so all the blessing wasn't his. But if you've been living with if in whatever it is in your life, God says, the time is here to take the responsibility and say, God, I'll do it. Because when we assume the responsibility, God gives us the blessing. I want you to watch a video of someone in this church who just rather recently, God has put before her a responsibility and how she has decided to respond to the responsibilities God has given her. Let's watch. Break my heart for what breaks yours. This has really been the prayer that God has placed on my heart this summer. Um, My name is Tammy, and I'm a mom of three. Um, I've really wanted to go to Haiti since the earthquake, but have been unable to due to scheduling conflicts. And actually, to tell you the truth, I've been scared to get out of my comfort zone. In June, I was able to go with my daughter Lexi, who's 14, on a trip to Haiti with the Compass. I was prepared for poverty, but when we got off the plane in Port-au-Prince, I was just shocked and amazed at the conditions these people live in. They're still intense from the earthquake, and um, the filth was unbelievable. Um, there's animals walking around in the middle of people selling their food, and it, it was a chaotic mess. What if they get sick? Where do they go? There are no options. I just remember thinking, this is only an hour and a half out of Miami, and there is no water infrastructure here. How can this be such a third world country when we're so close to the United States? They have no water, and so these children travel for hours and hours back and forth from their homes with jugs in their hands and buckets on their heads. When I was in Haiti, I could look down a dirty creek and see mothers washing their clothes, and then their children bathing in that same water, and then animals bathing and drinking and relieving themselves in the same area that people were drinking water. I came home and felt God really tugging at my heart. God really just said, don't forget the people in Haiti. Don't forget those who break my heart. Don't get into your daily living and all the activities that are bustling around you and forget those. 
that are there. I thought, okay, what can I do? And God triggered on my mind um, a project that I had heard of a couple of years ago. And the Schumann Water Project was started by the Schumann George. So George the Schumann collects shoes and then he brings them to places like Haiti and Kenya and South America, all places that need water. And then with the proceeds, George the Schumann is able to dig wells and install water purifications that are so badly needed in those areas. I contacted them in St. Louis and was told that basically I needed to start by gathering 5,000 pairs of shoes. And I just remember thinking, you know, that's 10,000 shoes. So far, I have about 500 pairs of shoes. There have been many times that God has called me to, to use me, and I've told him I'll do it later, or I've just pushed it off altogether. I have decided to obey and listen to what God's calling is. I'm not gonna chicken out and say that I'll start tomorrow because God's work is always in progress. I'm not starting anything new. I can obey and jump on board or I can let that ship pass me by. And I've come to the realization that with God, all things are possible. Well, it sounds to me as though Compass Church, you've got a responsibility, 4,500 shoes between now and next Sunday. Really, there's some boxes there. If some of you today, on the way out, want to take your shoes off and put them in there, you're welcome to do that. And we won't even laugh. Next week, you have an if that stands for seven days. Next week, there's not going to be boxes there. There's going to be big dumpsters here to see if in seven days... 4,500 more shoes can be added for this ministry because someone in your midst, God worked in our heart and said, step up and take this responsibility. And she has said she would. And part of the body, you can help her. Shoes to us really are not that expensive, but they can make an awesome difference in Haiti. So leave your shoes tonight or come next week prepared to put shoes in the boxes and the dumpsters and serve Jesus Christ that way.